Well, it is so great to have uh, voices fill in this place again. Uh, it's not just uh, me and Arnold standing back here in an empty room singing like a couple of crazy people. Um, uh, it is a, a joy to have you here with us. Um, as we gather this morning and, uh, and, and look into God's Word, um, I want to pose the question as we get underway, um, what is a successful church? Take a minute, think about the church that's just killing it, that, that church that is 100% rocking it. What does that look like? What are the, the things that mark a truly thriving church? Maybe to put it another way, um, what does revival look like? We hear a lot of talk about revival. We hear about um, people praying for revival. What is it? Would you know a church in the middle of revival if you walked into it? And what would you expect to find there? Today we come to Exodus 33. And uh, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles with me. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, we can't give you one. Um, so uh, as it has been for the past, uh, flip open to esv.org. And, uh, and you can follow along there. But we want you to have God's Word in front of you. Um, I have... Nothing to offer. Um, 11 weeks of uh, social distancing has not given me some great wisdom to share. Um, Just God's word. This is all we have. And so um, open up there. Um, Those of you who are here from the early days, um, you'll you'll be familiar with this passage. Um, This verse, I think more than any other out of Exodus 33, um, was the constant prayer that we prayed um, Matthew 16, 18, Psalm 127 would be kind of right up there on the list. Um, but Exodus 33 um, was one of the constant cries of our heart for this church plant as it began. Usually, boiled down to this simple phrase, God, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. God, if this is not you, if you're not going to be there, um, we don't want to go. And so it's my hope as we look into this passage again this morning with uh, a little more depth and seeing it in its fuller context as we work through the book of Exodus, that those who were here in the early days are going to have that fire kind of rekindled a little bit, be reminded of the the passion, renewed engagement in that mission of what it means to truly be the church. And for those of you who maybe are newer to the church or even just wondering, what is this church all about? What does it mean to be the church? Maybe this will be helpful and and clarifying. Um, But for all of us, my my prayer is that God would help us to see uh, in his word what it means to truly be the people of God. Um, So um, would you pray with me um, before we read God's word? Father, we need you more than anything else. You are our hope. You are our one desire. God, we desire to see um, your presence in this place amongst us. God, I pray as we open your word um, that you would open our eyes, that we might see your truth, um, that you would soften our hearts, that we might be changed. God, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would convict us of sin, that you would ignite a passion in us um, that can only be satisfied by you and you alone. Lord, for your glory, Would you work in us today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, the first thing we see in this passage um, is what the Israelites themselves call uh, a disastrous word. Um, You'll see that in verse 4. They're looking back at what happened in verses 1 to 3, and and they call it a disastrous word. Um, So let's look at verses 1 to 3 and and see what they're talking about. Um, Let me read it for us. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So let's just take a moment and be honest here. A a disastrous word? Really? Is it really that bad? I mean, that sounds a little bit strong. As we read through this passage, it's almost entirely positive. God is saying, I'm going to give you the good things of the covenant. And remember where they've come from, chapter 32, and the the golden calf, they sinned against God, the anger of the Lord burned hot against them, and and he made it clear that they've spit in my face, they've broken this gracious covenant, they deserve to die. And now, chapter 33, God has been gracious, incredibly gracious. Not only will he refrain from destroying them, but he's told them, I will give you all the benefits of the covenant. You'll still go up into the promised land. I'm going to send an angel before you who's going to wipe out the people there. I will fight the war for you. And that land flowing with milk and honey will be yours. Now there's a downside. The Lord said, I will not go with you. But notice why. Because if I go with you, I will consume you. So that makes sense, right? I mean, if those are the options, um, I think that's the one we're going with. And yet they cry out, this is a disaster. We just need to pause here and ask, um, do we see it this way? If God were to say to you, you can have all the blessings of being a Christian, You can have the church family. You can have peace in your heart. You can have confidence and and joy. You can have heaven for eternity, but you won't have me. Would we be okay with that? What would the response of your heart be? What about for us as a church? If we could have the, the rocking worship team in a beautiful building with all the trappings and a children's ministry that's just full of joy and excitement and colorful hallways and a, and a built-in park and, and, and all the most engaging, entertaining sermons that never went a single minute over 30 minutes, um, new people coming every week, seats that are filled, a massive outreach into the community and even political influence. We could have all of the best programs and talent and and toys that any church could ever ask for, and the only thing missing was the presence of the Lord. Would we be okay with that? And, And I think more pointedly, would we even notice his absence? It is so easy. We so 
often get caught up in the blessings of God, get caught up in the, the trappings of religion and, and ministry and programs, the, the external blessings, that we would take what Israel calls a, a disastrous word and we would call it good. We would call it success. We would even call it revival. And sadly, so much of what we focus on as a church in North America, so much of what we use as, as measurements and metrics, what we define as success, is actually catering to worldly-mindedness, working so hard, so desperately trying to get unsafe people who have no desire for the Lord just to, just to come to church. But that very process that we use, trying to get people to, to come to church even though they have very little or no interest in God himself is the exact same process by which we usher God out the back door. It's tragic. It's disastrous. And all too often it's met with rejoicing. We have got to see again uh, with clarity and conviction what it means to be the people of God. The most sinful, depraved of all men desires to have God's good blessings. He wants God's good gifts in his life, but it's only the true people of God who have their, their eyes of their hearts opened by the Holy Spirit who have been brought from, from death to life who understand that to have every single good thing of God and not God himself is nothing less than disaster. Can we honestly say with Psalm 73, who have I in heaven but you, Lord? There's nothing on earth that I desire but you. And maybe for some, the answer is no. No, if I'm perfectly honest, um, I have a desire for the gifts of the Lord. But as far as love for, for God himself, I don't know where to find that in my heart. I'm not sure what that even really looks like. Maybe it's just not clear, and I suspect that's the case for many, if not most of us. There's this raging battle going on. I want to want him. I, I desire to desire him more. But I see this battle in my heart. I see this tendency, this, this pull to be satisfied in his gifts and to leave him behind and be distracted from his glory. And so having seen this disastrous word in, in verses 1 to 3, um, and I hope feeling the danger of that in our own hearts, terrified by the prospect that, that maybe I'm among those who are, who are satisfied with merely the gifts of the Lord without the presence of the Lord, we need to look next at the example of Israel uh, as a desperate people. It's point 2, verses 4 to 11, uh, a desperate people. We read it for us. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. Now Moses used to take the tent 
and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses Turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. I want to start down in verse 7. This is explaining their new reality. This, this is their new normal, as it were. Um, the Lord said that, that he would not go with them, and, and in effect, this was a, a cancellation on the tabernacle. Full stop. That's not happening anymore. Project on hold. Think about what the tabernacle was First, it was, the, it was the presence of the Lord in the midst of the people with, with all of the Israel camped in a circle around it. God was right in their center. Secondly, uh, the Lord's presence would be there continuously. He would always be there. They would know where to find Him. And thirdly, all the people would come regularly to worship. Now Moses is erecting this other tent that he calls the tent of meeting, a a term that's used of the tabernacle, but this is obviously far inferior. First, it's pitched outside the camp, far off. It's not in the middle of the people where the Lord would dwell. It's, It's well outside of the camp. Secondly, rather than the Lord's presence dwelling there continually, the cloud that represented the Lord's presence would come and go as Moses came and went from the tent And so thirdly, if anyone sought the Lord, they could venture outside the camp to go to the tent, but they had no guarantee of the Lord's presence, no guarantee of his blessing there. And so how did the people respond? They were a desperate people. Going back to verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. And and verse 5 explains why they didn't put on their ornaments. Because the Lord said, don't put on your ornaments. And and, and so this is is an act of mourning, of of grief. This would have gone, um, this would have been their, their jewelry that they had brought out of Egypt. The Egyptians gave them as they left. And in ancient cultures, um, serious mourning, like if a a loved one had died, was not just an internal thing, um, it was an external expression. You would show it in the way that you dressed. And and part of that was not wearing any ornaments, any jewelry. You wouldn't beautify yourself in the same way. But I think there's also a bit of a nod here. It was this jewelry, um, obviously not these very items of jewelry, but some of this jewelry that they gave up to make the golden calf. And so their first response at being separated from the Lord about hearing this disastrous word is repentance. They're grieved and mourn their sin. But more specifically, they're they're broken over the fact that they have been removed from the presence of the Lord. They put away those things that, that drew their hearts away from him in the first place. 
The only way to, to draw near to the Lord is to turn away from sin. To turn away from the things that offend Him, the things that, that separate us from Him. And they did. They, they repent, they turn away from sin, but then they also turn to the Lord. This image has always struck me as so powerful. Um, you can imagine a, a quiet, warm evening in the wilderness. Families are relaxing around the tent after supper, and, and one of the kids comes in from playing outside. Dad, Dad, he's going out again. Word would spread from tent to tent through the camp. Moses is going back out to the tent of meeting. I remember a few years ago, um, we lived in Didsbury. There was a tornado warning in the area, and, uh, and this strange green-purple cloud beginning to swirl in the sky. And uh, a funnel cloud did eventually form and touch down just west of town. Um, and as good, stubborn, arrogant Albertans, um, rather than hiding in our basements as we were supposed to be, um, one by one, first fathers and then families, were standing out on the front lawn watching with this, this sense of, of silent wonder, of, of curiosity mixed with fear. And the, the air was still, and it was just this, this eerie moment as we all stood quietly looking at this strange cloud in the west, watching the, the funnel slowly descend. And I imagine it was much the same way. The Israelites, one by one, coming out of their tents, stood watching with, with fear and curiosity, as the cloud descended on the tent of meeting, and they knew the Lord had come again. Here he is. And standing there in the door of their tent, they responded in this, this morning longing worship. Not only did they turn from their sin, but they sought the Lord. They were desperate for him. Standing outside watching, there he is, so close. So desperate that, that even knowing that his presence would be out there far off from the camp, they, they would all rise and worship in the door of their tent. Church, we need more of this. That's what revival looks like in the church. It's a turning from sin and a desperate longing for God and God alone. Revival is an extraordinary outpouring of the ordinary work of the Spirit in our lives. Listen to the words of A.W. Tozer. He says this, We make out the revival as everybody running around and falling on everyone else's neck and saying, Oh, forgive me for thinking this bad thought about you. Forgive me for that nickel I forgot to pay back. Or we say that revival consists of people getting very loud and noisy. Well, that might happen in a revival, but the only kind of revival that would be there when the worlds are on fire is the revival that begins by saying, O oh God, give us thyself, for nothing less than thee will do. We need him. That's what we need. Are we that kind of people? Are we the kind of church whose heart is set on the Lord himself? I don't want all the trappings of church. I don't want the, the fanciest, best programs. I want the Lord. Are we that kind of church? I think another way to ask that question is simply to ask, are we a church that prays? 
A.T. Pearson, um, among many, many others, uh, has noted that there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or any locality that did not begin by united prayer, the church coming together in corporate prayer. That's where it starts. That's where that extraordinary outpouring of the ordinary work of the Spirit begins among the people of God. We put that on our, on our banners and we say this is, this is priority number one. We're, we're a people of, of desperate prayer, fervent prayer. Are we a people that prays? Charles Spurgeon famously said, uh, the condition of a church can be accurately measured um, by its prayer meetings. And let me encourage you to think a little bit deeper about that than I think we often do. Quickly, we default to thinking um, that what is important, that the measure of a healthy church, is how many people at the prayer meeting. How big is the prayer meeting? And, and, and that's not insignificant. Certainly, that's, that's one element. Are there people there? Are we together praying? But beneath that is another layer, a question I think is at least as important. Not only are we praying, but what are we praying? What do those prayers look like? Do our prayers reflect a desperation for the Lord himself? Or are we just preoccupied with his gifts? There is a kind of prayer, prayer focused uh, only on the exterior blessings of the Lord that not only fails to honor him as it should, but it actually actively brings dishonor to his name. Are we desperate for the Lord in worship-focused prayer, or are we distracted from the Lord in want-focused prayer? I think this is so important, and I hope you've seen this if you've attended our prayer meetings in the last year or so. We're just working to cultivate this. This is something God's been working in my heart over the last couple of years now. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And he said, when you pray, pray like this. Jesus says, pray like this. We ought to pay attention. And he gives them this, this pattern for prayer, this, this outline, the Lord's Prayer. And he, I don't think he intends for us to recite that prayer, that there's nothing wrong with that, but to pray prayers that reflect that prayer. And, and I think the Lord's Prayer breaks down fairly nicely into four basic sections. And it says, he lays out reverence, response, request, and readiness. He begins with reverence. He begins with worship. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Standing in awe of who God is. That's number one. We come to God first in, in worship. Following that reverence, then he moves to response. How do I respond to the, the holiness of God, the glory of God? How do we live and give ourselves in light of that? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We, we give ourselves to the Lord before asking anything from the Lord. So it's reverence and response. And then, having rightly oriented our hearts, he turns to request. Then he comes to give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And then he ends with readiness. Where do we go from here? How do we move forward Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are so quick to just jump straight to request. That's what we want to pray about. To seek the Lord's hand before we seek his face. And it shouldn't be that way. 
Prayer is not primarily about informing the Lord of our needs as if he doesn't know. It's not primarily about informing him of our thoughts on how he ought to run his universe. Yes, requests are good. That's a healthy aspect of our prayer, our dependence on him for for day-to-day needs. But the primary purpose of prayer, the ultimate goal of true prayer, is nothing other than the Lord himself. It's a desperation for him. It's seeking his presence with us. That's what we need more than anything else. We saw that clearly as we worked through Philippians and talking about what it means to have contentment in him. What it means to not have anxiety because he is what we need. Now, let me attempt to undo the damage that preachers have done um, year after year, sermon after sermon. And it's the damage of guilt. And I know this because I feel it deeply. I feel the opportunity right now, the temptation to use that guilt to pressure you. You should be at the prayer meetings. You should come. Guilt is a a powerful motivator. And I know that because I've often felt the crowbar of guilt applied to my own heart from preachers as they press in on prayer. And I feel my own lack of dedication to prayer. But the motivation of guilt doesn't last, and and more importantly, it it doesn't honor the Lord as it should. Church, I desperately want us to have prayer meetings that are packed to the doors, standing room only. None of this six feet apart business. We're filling it up. That's what we want. Prayer meetings that that would not be seen as as an optional extra for those kind of super spiritual types, but this is the life of the church. This is where it happens. And nothing would soil that more quickly than a bunch of people gathered out of guilt and shame and a a cold sense of duty. The Lord's not honored by dutiful prayer, but by desperate prayer. Now don't get me wrong, sometimes that desperate prayer is a strong act of the will to overcome my heart. Because I know I need this even though my cold heart isn't there yet. That's that, that, that can be a, a right movement of desperate prayer. But that's what we are after as, as a group of people who are deeply convinced of their need for Him. Who are moved by, by delight in and a desire for His glory that, that just outshines everything else. That the prayer meeting takes top priority in the calendar. That, that nobody would say, oh, I'd love to come to prayer meeting, but I have bowling. I'd love to come to prayer meeting, but I go for walks that evening. No, I'd love to go for a walk, but there's a prayer meeting to be at, and there's nowhere else I need to be more than that. Not some kind of gift that you give to the church or to the Lord by showing up for for prayer, but rather it's it's the joyful highlight of of a life lived in dependent prayer or the determined act of a heart that is desperate for the Lord. Desperate for the Lord, why? Coming to Him in prayer and worship, why? Just because He's worthy to be sought. That's the only enduring motivation for prayer, that He is worthy to be sought. He's our only joy. In Him we delight. This is my prayer for us here, Psalm 85, 6. Lord, will you not revive your people again that your people may rejoice in you? 
What a great hope. Revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. Church, are we desperate for him? Are we seeking after him more than anything else? Because it's not only through uh, the desperate pursuit of him. Sorry, it is. It's only through the desperate pursuit of him um, that we find what makes us distinct. That's what we find in these last verses. They saw this disastrous word of the Lord removing his presence that led them to be this, this desperate people seeking after him and that desperate people gives way to a distinct nation. Look with me at these verses 12 to 23. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not, told, you have not let me know how you, whom you will send with me. You said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found your favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of this earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So Moses again approaches the Lord on behalf of the people, and he said, Lord, you you told me, Take this people up to the promised land, but you didn't tell me who would go with me. And and embedded in that question is Moses' concern. Uh, Previously, the Lord had said he would be with Israel. Now there's this huge contrast. Verse 2, he says, an angel will go before you. There's a huge difference between the Lord with us and an angel before us. And, and Moses is saying, that's not good enough. That doesn't satisfy. That's not what we want. Let me just give you an overview of this conversation, and then we'll kind of go back and, and go a little deeper in. Moses pleaded with the Lord, verse 13, if I found favor in your sight, if this people is your people, then go with us. And the Lord answered, verse 14, Okay, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. But Moses is so tenacious. He's so hung up on this. This is so crucial for him that even though the Lord has already answered, yes, he's got this list of arguments in his head and he's going to work through it. He's going to finish this plea. And so verses 15 and 16, he asks again. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 17, the Lord answers again, yes. Yes, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you. 
And then finally, wanting to confirm once for all that the Lord would actually be with him. He asks for confirmation. Give me, give me proof, Lord. And the proof that he asks for is, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll show you my glory as, as confirmation of this covenant between us. But I want us to go back to verses 15 and 16. Moses' second plea to the Lord. These are the words that we have prayed so many times for this church. Lord, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. If you're not in this, if you will not be present, then we're out. We don't care about anything else. We don't want to plant some church in the middle of this town and not have you there. Why? Because that's what makes us distinct from every other people on the face of the earth. This is it. That's all we have. Listen, if you want great music, go to a concert. Josh, I love you. You did a bang-up job. You serve us well. Um, but let's just be honest. If you want a, a premium experience of music, go to a concert. There's better secular music out there. Now, let's not just pick on Josh. If you want a decent speaker, if you want stories that, that grab your heart and motivate you and, and really good practical help for, for day-to-day living, have you, have you checked out TED Talks? Like They're good. Go there. If you're looking for a group to be a part of, camaraderie, a, a purpose, and a, and a mission together, I, I would recommend CrossFit. Like Those guys are in it, and they are side-by-side side and not giving up. They are a, a deep community. Everything we do is done bigger and better and shinier out there. Go to the movies. There's one thing that makes us distinct. There's one thing that we have to offer. There's one reason to be part of a church rather than part of the the Cub Scouts or the Rotary Club. And it's that the presence of the Lord is here. If we don't have that, we don't have anything. Pack it up, turn off the lights, we're going home. But if we have that, if we have with us the favor and the presence of the Lord, if if people come here and exclaim, surely the presence of the Lord is among you. If we go from this place and say, I have met with the Almighty God today, then we have everything. That's what makes us distinct. And that's the only thing that matters. So our, our goal here is we, as we plan services and we lay out our ministry calendars, we decide what to do and how to do it and, and, and what it means to be the church and how we measure and define success. Our goal is not, will people like it? Will people come? Will people give? Will it make people better citizens, better spouses, better parents? Our goal, our prayer is verse 13. Show us your way that we may know you in order to find favor in your sight, Lord. Because our goal is the presence of the Lord. That is what makes us distinct. And here's the amazing thing. We don't pursue that blindly. We don't pursue that with a sense of wondering whether or not it will work. We're asking the Lord and seeking the Lord for exactly what he delights to give and exactly what we are guaranteed in Christ. 
Look carefully at Moses' argument that he makes before the Lord. Going back to verse 12, he said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring this people up, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Um, He's saying to the Lord, you gave me this job. I didn't apply for this. I didn't sign up for this. You picked me for this. And then later in verse 12, he says, I, uh, You have said, I know you by name, and have found favor, you have found favor in my sight. He's saying, God, you said that I was yours. You said that I found favor in your sight. And his argument is this, what good is that? What difference does it make to have the favor of God and to be placed and chosen by you as this mediator for this people if you don't go with them? If they don't have your glorious presence that makes them distinct, what does it even mean that I found favor in your sight and that you have appointed me as their leader? It would make me an absolute failure as a mediator. And frankly, God, it would reflect on you. Verse 17, the Lord answers, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you. Why? For you have found favor in my sight. And I have known you by name. His glorious presence was granted to Israel based on God's favor showed to Moses, showed to their leader, their mediator. So this is Moses wrestling with God. This is his prayer for the people of Israel. John 17, we read of Jesus' prayer for his people, for us, the church. Verses 20 to 24, he makes the same argument. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, and he's speaking of the apostles who are gathered there, I don't ask for them only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. It's the presence of the Lord. Give them your presence, our glory among them. And here's the argument so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And here it is again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me a third time because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays for us, for his church, his people, that they might have fellowship with the Lord, intimacy with God in Christ, the presence of the Lord with them. And three times he bases on the same argument that Moses made. Do it for them to prove that you have sent me, that you've called me, that I have favor in your sight. Israel had the ongoing presence of the Lord given to them based on and and guaranteed by God's favor toward Moses as their mediator, as their leader. And in Christ, we have an infinitely greater mediator. A true mediator uh, to which Moses was pointing forward as, as merely a shadow to our mediator, the one who represents us before the Lord, the Lord himself said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He knows him by name. He has given his favor to 
him. And, and we cry out for the glory of the Lord. And we ask for his presence among us. We, we, don't, we don't come as if we deserve it. We don't ask as if we have any right to it. We deserve to be disowned by God, to be written off, to be destroyed for our sin. No, we come saying, God, do it for the sake of Christ. Vindicate him. Prove your favor on Jesus by answering his prayer, by honoring his sacrifice and letting your glory dwell in our presence. And just quickly, there's one last question that has to be answered. And that is, how can this be? How can this happen? God had said he would not go with them because if he had been with them for even a moment, he would consume them because of their sin. So how is it now that he is going with them? That he does go with us and yet we are not consumed? And the answer comes to verse 19. The Lord said to Moses, that he would have all his goodness, all his glory, his splendor pass before Moses. And he would proclaim his name, the Lord. To, to say his, his name, that it stands for his character and, and who he is, his person. And then he declared, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Basically saying, you will see my glory and not be consumed because I have chosen to show mercy to you, to be gracious to you, and I can do that to whomever I please. And then he promises to tuck Moses into the cleft, into a, a crack in the rock, and to cover him with his hand. And there the glory of the Lord would pass by him and he would be protected. In the rock, he would experience the presence of the Lord and live. And once again, it's pointing to Jesus. It's Christ. He is that rock in which the Lord places us and holds us there with his hand and hidden in Christ, sheltered from the destruction that we deserve by the glory of God. In the sacrificial death of Christ, covering our sin, we see the glory of God and are not consumed. So we cry out in desperation, Lord, show us your glory. Lord, if, if you don't go with us, then, then don't send us up from here. Lord, it is only by your presence that we are distinct and we're desperate for you. We're desperate for you. And we do it looking to Christ. I invite the worship team to come. But consider this. Do we seek the Lord this way? Are we desperate for Him as we should be? Looking to Him, not based on anything we deserve, on His favor toward us, but on His favor toward Christ. And, and hiding in Christ, knowing that, that in our sin on our own, we would be utterly consumed. But God has so graciously given us Protection, amnesty in Christ, tucked safely into the rock and held there by his hand. So let me plead with you again, church. Oh, let us never be satisfied merely with the gifts of God and be distracted from the glory of God himself. Let us be a church that seeks him with desperation, that will pursue him in prayer because it's him who makes us distinct. And so let's seek him and worship him because he is worthy.
Would you stand? Let's sing to our God.